Our scripture passage this morning is Matthew 8, 18 through 34. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Glad you're here. If you're a guest with us, uh, the way we typically roll at Southside is we just walk through the Bible, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, book by book. We've actually taken a break recently, but now we're jumping back into the gospel according to Matthew. So if you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one of ours there in the chair in front of you. It'll be page 763. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that one home. It'll be our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of the scriptures. And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 8, page 763. And so much of Matthew is about the authority of Jesus. And the reason that's the case is because that's just such a basic truth to the Christian faith. The basic confession of the early church was Jesus Christ is Lord. And so what the Spirit through Matthew wants us to see in these verses is that Jesus is the authoritative Son of Man and Son of God. So let's consider the cost of following Jesus, the calming of the storm, and the casting out of demons. First, the cost of following Jesus. Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. The Holy Spirit through Matthew. Now, 
when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury the dead. So people here, they're starting to crowd around Jesus. So Jesus leaves. <laughs> again and again, Jesus is going to blow our paradigm for ministry. One would think that he would want the crowds, but he leaves the crowds because he's not after those that are seeking him for his benefits, but he is after those who are seeking him for him. So here he is wanting to get a little space. And this Bible scholar, a scribe, eagerly approaches him, confidently declares, I will go wherever you go. This guy found Jesus compelling. And how does Jesus reply? He warns him. He says, look, even the animals have places to live, but I don't. Are you sure you're ready to follow me? He checks them. It's not very seeker sensitive. And then a second guy comes along. He's interested in Jesus, but he needs to bury his father first. And in effect, Jesus says, forget the funeral planning. It's time to go on a mission trip. It's quite insensitive unless you're the son of God. His dad probably hadn't died yet, probably in his later years. And so this son wanted to be there, needed to be there to take care of everything. And Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. How bold is Jesus here? In two ways. First, notice he calls those who are still alive dead. Spiritually dead. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Because, friends, we've got to remind ourselves that those who don't know Christ, they may be alive and well, but they're dead men walking. They're zombies. Paul teaches this in Colossians 2. He teaches it in Ephesians 2. We, before Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Jesus agrees. That's where Paul got it. Our spiritual condition apart from Christ is much worse than we think. We weren't sick. We were dead. We weren't drowning. We were floating face down. And we need to get this right. Many don't get this right. There are many people who call themselves Christians who downplay our sin. But we really do need to understand what the Bible teaches about original sin and total depravity, just how bad we were. But many don't. Many think we're really not that bad after all. In fact, recent study, Risa Barna poll surveyed evangelical Christians. And evangelical Christians are those who believe the Bible, believe that someone must trust in Jesus to be saved. 77%, according to this poll, of evangelical Christians agree with the statement that people are basically good. 77%. And listen, friends, I think the church in America, generally speaking, is fairly, fairly weak. And I think one of the reasons the church in America is so anemic is because we're not blown away by grace. We're not blown away by the gospel, by the good news. But the good news is only good news if there's bad news. And if three-quarters of us, 77%, think that we're basically good, then we're not going to glory in the cross. We won't be astounded by grace. We'll just be apathetic. Because if we're only half lost, we're only half saved. But the Bible teaches that our sin is way more seriously than we think. It's, Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Death, spiritual death, it really doesn't get any more serious than that. But that's not the end of the story. Praise God. 
He provides life to the dead through the gospel. For those of us who know Christ, we were dead. We were uninterested. We were unresponsive. But then we heard the gospel. Some friend shared it with us. Or we heard it in church. Or a family member, a parent shared the gospel with us. And the Spirit of God accompanied that message and moved us from death to life. Drew us. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 6. No one can come to the Father unless the Father, to me, sorry, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can. We have this inability because we're dead. But God, Ephesians 2 continues to say, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive. Charles Wesley, that old school hymn, 1700s, we need to sing it on a Sunday night at some point. And can it be? Was thinking of this. He says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening, making alive. That's what it means to be quickened. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth. And followed thee. We were dead. Let the dead bury the dead. And an old Presbyterian named Jack Miller says, Cheer up, you're far worse than you think, but God's grace is far greater than you ever dared hope. So Jesus is bold. He calls those that are living dead. But notice also the second way he's bold here is he puts his mission ahead of this guy's family. He says, You must prioritize me over your pops. It's something that was countercultural then, it's countercultural now. One of the main priorities of the Jewish people was praying this daily prayer. Deuteronomy 6, we call it the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was one of the main, most important, sacred rituals of the day. It was the priority, but there was one, in terms of Jewish writing, there was one priority that took precedence over this prayer. You know what it was? Giving your father a proper burial. And Jesus says, me and my family are to have priority over the biological family. The blood of Jesus is thicker than family blood. And he's going to say this again and again in the gospel. Just to stick with Matthew, flip back with me to chapter 4. We've already seen it. It's been a little while. We look at chapter 4, verse 18. While Jesus, while he's walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And remember, this is the way it worked back in the day. If you were a son in particular, you didn't have to worry about, what am I going to be when I grow up? Well, you're going to take on the family business. You're going to do what your dad did. Verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Left family and left family, the family business. Flip over to Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. The cost of following Jesus, 10, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace 
but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves, some of you are experiencing this right now. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus must be our priority over all things, even our own flesh and blood. Look at chapter 12, verse 46. Twelve forty-six. while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow him, you've got to rearrange some priorities. And who we define as our in-group, our family, is now has to be changed because of who Jesus is. And he teaches us here that love of family can actually keep us from Christ and keep us from following him as we should. He's bold. He's bold. What can we learn from this boldness of Jesus? Well, for one, he's the son of God, as we'll see. But two, he also believed in eternity. He majored on the majors, and so should we. Stake your life on what will be unshaken at the return of Christ. On that day, when he comes, when he splits the sky, let's not be those who have to lament at how much focus we put on our bank accounts or our reputation. Let us not be those who lament on how Little we told others of the glory of Jesus. Let's be bold. In both of these instances here, the hasty scribe and the hesitant son, Jesus basically says, count the cost. Before you follow me, count the cost. He does that often. He's not interested in quick decisions that may not endure. Rarely, friends, is there anything quick in the kingdom of Christ. He'll warn us about that again and again and again. It's the lessons we Americans need to learn. King Jesus is not looking for decisions. He's looking for disciples. He's not looking for fans. He's looking for followers. Listen to the way he puts it in the Gospel of Luke. 14.25, he says this, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to him, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish all, finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other's yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, 
Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. If you're interested in following Jesus, Jesus' first step is actually, are you sure? Are you ready? Are you prepared to endure hardship? Are you ready to carry your cross? And remember, friends, the cross is not a difficult mother-in-law. The cross is an instrument of execution. It's not just some petty burden that we bear. It's the end of us. Are you ready to say no to the trivial that you may say yes to the ultimate? And if not, Jesus says, well, you're not yet ready. The Bible offers costly grace, not cheap grace. That's the way the the theologian and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it famously. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. It's absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But he says costly grace is the treasure hidden in the fields. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his good. It's the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye and which causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's what we just sang. Costly grace you freely give. So the call of Christ is costly. It requires total allegiance, complete obedience. Why? Because it becomes from Jesus Christ, the one with unparalleled authority. Leave it all. Leave home, leave family, follow me. Who can make such demands? None but God. But if he's God, then we owe him all that we are. We must leave lesser loyalties. And friends, every other loyalty is lesser. 2 Timothy 2.4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. How many of us are entangled in civilian pursuits? Did you notice how Jesus referred to himself? Look again at verse 20 of Matthew 8. He says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Son of man. It's, maybe if you've grown up in church, this is all really familiar. Have you ever wondered why? There's a lot of things Jesus could have called himself. Why did he call himself the son of man? This is the first time it happens in Matthew, but this is his favorite way. It happens 81 times in the Gospels. Well, what does it mean? What does he mean by son of man? Like most things in the Bible, we need to go to the Old Testament to find out. And specifically, the book of Daniel and Daniel 7, which has this vision of four beasts representing four kingdoms whose dominion would ultimately come to an end. The Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greek, and Roman. And then we have these verses, Daniel 7, 13, and 14. And this is where the title Son of Man comes from. Really important passage for the early church, Daniel chapter 7. Let me read these verses, verse 13. Daniel 7, 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, that's God, and was presented before him, and to him was given 
dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. All these other kingdoms, mighty as they may have been, we're going to come to an end. But this kingdom, the kingdom of the Son of Man, would never end. One like a Son of Man ascends to the Ancient of Days, who is God. This passage is often misread. It's often read as if it's talking about the second coming, the Son of Man coming. And we assume that it's a coming from heaven down to earth. But notice in Daniel, that's not what's happening. This is not a descent. This is an ascent. This is the Son of Man coming. It's a vision coming from heaven. So it's to earth from heaven. It's a going up. It's not a going down. That's actually really important. We'll see more and more as we walk through Matthew. So when the Bible speaks of the Son of Man coming, it's not the second coming. It's the ascension. It's a coming up from earth to heaven. The Son of Man ascends to the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man ascends and is enthroned. Notice it said, to him was given authority. There's this verb here. I normally don't like to pull out the original languages unless it's really helpful. But this verb here, it's edothe. Just knock that in your mind, edothe. And this word for dominion and authority is a similar word. And then nations. Remember God's heart for the nations, pontata ethne. To him was given all authority, dominion, and glory in a kingdom. And this kingdom will consist of all people's nations, pontata ethne, and languages. And this kingdom will never end. And this vision becomes a reality in the first coming of Jesus, right? We saw that in chapter 3, verse 2, and chapter 4, verse 17. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus has all authority. This title is significant. This is why he calls himself this. And his rule will include the nations. An everlasting rule and nations. A forever king, an everlasting kingdom, and all the nations. If we know our Bibles, this ought to sound familiar. Promise to Abraham, Genesis 12. Through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The covenant with David, 2 Samuel 7. David would have a son who would have a kingdom that would never end. What Jesus is saying is, I'm here. What they were talking about is now here. The one who's going to bring blessing to the nations, I'm that offspring. The one who's going to have a kingdom that will never end, that's me. All that pointed to me, which is what we saw, right? Flip back a page or two to chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, I don't come that I came to abolish the law. I don't think that. No, I came to not to abolish, but to fulfill the scriptures, to bring about that which it pointed to, which is why Matthew starts the book the way he does. Flip over to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. What does he want us to know about who this Jesus is? First and fundamentally, who is this Jesus? Chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. The forever king who's going to rule forever. And who's he going to rule over? Genesis 12, promised to Abraham, all the nations, which is also why the book ends the way the book does, right? The Great Commission. All authority has been given to me, Jesus says. By the way, that word authority? Same word from Daniel 7. That phrase, given to me, same verb, edothe, from Daniel 7. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, on that basis, go and make disciples of, pontata ethne, all the nations, teaching them everything that I commanded. 
Jesus is the forever king who will rule over the nations. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that if this is true, we have what's called the mission equation. If there is one king to whom all nations belong and owe their allegiance, then the people of that king must promote that reality everywhere. There's one king, and everyone is belonged to, belongs to him and owes him their allegiance. Jesus is the son of man. His first readers would have known exactly where that phrase came from. He's the authoritative one, the one with all authority. That's the way Matthew and Jesus often use the phrase. You can flip over to Matthew 9, 6. Another time he uses this phrase, son of man. It's his favorite way to reference himself, and he uses it in key context to show that he has all authority. Chapter 9, verse 6 of Matthew which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, arise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man, there it is, has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he says, rise, pick up your bed, go home. Or all the way towards the end of the book in Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to use it again. He's the one with all authority. He's the Lord. He's the King. 26 verse 64. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming, ascending on the clouds of heaven. He was telling the audience, you're going to see this and you're going to know firsthand that I am who I said that I was. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man because he's the universal king who will bring blessing to the nations. He's the king and his kingdom will include Everyone, he is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. He is the authoritative son of man and son of God. Number two, the calming of the storm. Look at verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? So Jesus and his disciples, they head out on the water to escape the crowds. This storm hits. Galilee was about 700 feet below sea level, so the cold winds from the western mountains could come and rush down and whip the waters into a rage in no time. And Jesus is asleep. He was tired. He was naturally exhausted, supernaturally confident. Not a worry in the world, even though he probably should have had one. Jesus was no seafarer, humanly speaking, right? He lived his life as a carpenter from Nazareth. Nazareth was a whole day's walk from the water. But here are the disciples, the professional fishermen, the professional seafarers. They know a bad storm. And they wake up the carpenter for help. You have a little bit of role reversal here. Jesus wakes up and says, oh, you of little faith. And I love how again and again the disciples include this less than flattering portrait of them. If this was a man-made religion, you make yourself look really good. Not like you had weak faith. And he rebukes the winds and the waves, and suddenly there's great calm. It had to be eerie. He says, you have little faith. Their, their faith was small. 
but it was enough. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Some of you have weak faith. And you know what? That's okay. You have faith in Jesus. Truly, the Christian life is not about the strength of your faith, but about the strength of the object of your faith. And his strength knows no limits. He can stop a storm with just a few words. The weakest faith connects you to the strongest Savior. When you're fearful, look to him. As weak as it may be, look to him. Look beyond the waves to the maker of the waves. We sang this song a couple Sunday nights ago. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. Do you believe that? In the midst of the storm, do you believe it? The object, not our strength, but the strength of the object of our faith that determines our stability in the storm. And so we look outside of ourselves and we look to him. How do they reply? Well, they ask, what sort of man is this? <laughs> it's really the question for you as well. What have you done with Jesus? Have you reckoned with this man, this God-man? He's truly man. He's truly God. You see them both right here in this passage. He goes from being tired and sleepy to stopping a storm with words. He is God. In fact, all through the Bible, it's only God that can stop the storm. We see that in many of the Psalms. Let me just read a few to give you an example. Psalm 29, verse 3. It's God alone. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord, by the way, these lords, these are all Yahweh. The voice of Yahweh is full of majesty. The voice of Yahweh breaks the cedars. The Lord, Yahweh, breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He's the one who speaks to the waters and they obey. Psalm 65, verse 5. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farther seas, the one who by his strength established the mountain, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Psalm 107, much the same. It's God who stops the storm. Verse 29. He made the storm be still. And the ways of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for, this, for his steadfast love. For his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people. And praise him in the assembly of the elders. Have you reckoned with this man? Have you yielded to him? Have you trusted in him? One commentator said this, there's much, much that is wrong on the earth that can be corrected, but it takes deity to change the weather. Jesus is the authoritative son of man and son of God. Third, we have the casting out of the demons. Look at verse 28 of Matthew 8. 
And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged them, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. So the storm ceases, they make their way to the other side, and they're blocked by these two violently demon-possessed men. And Jesus casts them out, sends them into the pigs. Here we learn several things about the demonic. Number one, the demonic are real. The demonic realm is real. In our enlightenment Western context, we're taught not to believe anything we cannot see. But that's not reality. Most of the world and most of history has known that. There is a spiritual realm beyond the natural realm. Second, we know that their power is limited. And they know that their power is limited. They know Jesus can cast them out. Third, they know because of that, Jesus is the authority. They say, if... You're going to cast us out? Please send us into the pigs. They ask permission of Jesus. They know they are at his will. Fourth, they know that Jesus is the Son of God. Notice how they respond. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? The demons know what the disciples don't yet know fully. They have insider information that Jesus is the Son of God. The title speaks for itself. Jesus is the Son of God and the demons know it. What else do they know? Fifth, they know a final judgment. They ask, have you come to torment us before God's appointed time? They know their days are numbered. Friend, again, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I wonder if you know as well as these dark forces know. Do you know that judgment day is coming? Everything in our world wants to say there is no such day. It's one of the biggest lies they can possibly promote. Do you know judgment is coming and have you acted on that knowledge? Do you believe that Jesus is God's son? God loves you and he provides you a way of escape from judgment. One of our most popular verses in the Bible, John 3, 16. God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but will live forever. If you want to talk more about that, talk with someone near you, talk to a church member, come talk to me. We love talking about getting to know Jesus. And then sixth and finally, Christ, God the Son here, he delivers. This time with one word, go. And he cast out the demons. And they enter the herd of pigs, run into the sea. Deviled ham. <laughs> Sue side. Sorry, verse 33. <laughs> The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. These herdsmen, they run into the city, they told him what they saw, and both Mark and Luke, Jesus says something like this, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. See, when Jesus redeems us, and delivers us, it should be the natural response to go and tell. This is why new Christians in particular are some of the most zealous evangelists. And then we get, we get rusty 
as we continue to mature in the faith. Maybe some of us veteran believers should pray and ask God to rekindle that passion, rekindle that zeal to go and tell of what God has done for us. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of the son he loves. Oh, tell of his might, oh, sing of his grace. But not everybody reacted that way. Notice verse 34, it says, some begged that he would stay away. See, they only cared about the destruction of their livestock. They only cared about the destruction of their property, what they would lose. They were worldly-minded. They didn't care about two souls that were just delivered. They just cared about their, their goods. They didn't benefit, so they don't care about these other people. Friends, let us beware of that ever-increasing and strong pull of the world. Again, everything around us is screaming. There's only this life. Only live for the here and now. Focus on next week and next month. Focus on the immediate. Don't think about eternity. Church, let us beware of loving the world more than loving Christ. They wanted to go. So we see Jesus has authority over all things. We can trust him. We can trust him with every aspect of our lives. He can handle it. He can overcome from the storm and from Satan. We are safe in his hands. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, this Jesus commands our destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. Follow him. Trust his power. Submit to his lordship. Join his mission. He is worthy. He's the authoritative and all-powerful son of man and son of God.